Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from Radical Remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. Hello, and welcome to the Stories That Heal podcast. This is Liz, and today, Carla and I are excited to welcome our radical remission survivor, Chris Joseph. Chris Joseph was diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer in October of 2016. He is also a dad, environmental consultant, cancer patient advocate, book author, television producer, podcaster, and founder of two music recording companies, a complimentary nonprofit helping New Orleans musicians, and a lover of all things outdoors. Chris's first book was Life is a Ride, My Unconventional Journey of Cancer Recovery in 2020, and he is currently in the throes of writing his next book. We are thrilled to share Chris's story of empowerment and showcase his example of how to thrive after receiving a diagnosis. Welcome, Chris. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Liz and I are always excited to share these inspiring stories, and yours is definitely an inspiring story. So pancreatic cancer is the scary silent one, right? Or one of the scary silent ones. It sure is. Yeah, it's one of the cancers that the screenwriters use to write out characters when when they want to kill out characters. Mm -hmm. For for women, I think it's breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And for men, it's it's, uh, pancreatic. Yeah. 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 So tell us, you know, where did you, along your journey, first find out about radical remission and how did it impact your healing journey? I think it impacted, uh, it impacted me greatly. I mean, so I got diagnosed seven years ago, seven years ago this month, October, 2016. Um, am I allowed to cuss? Uh, it was scary, <laughs> scary as <laughs> to get the diagnosis. I mean, I can smile about it now, but when it, when it happened, it was, really, really petrifying. Um, the first couple months I did conventional chemo and that wasn't working. The tumor was still growing and chemo, I'm sure you know, is very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's poison. Um, it can kill cancer cells, but it can also kill healthy cells. So when things weren't working, I, I fired my oncologist a few months later and embarked on my own journey. Um, and I know that's one of the key factors in radical remission is take charge, take control of your health. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what I did. I, I hadn't read Kelly's book at that point, um, but I did pick it up. It's hard to remember 2019 or so. I can't really remember when I read it, but so many of the things in in Kelly's book were things I had already done or things that I wanted to do. And that gave me the encouragement to, to to do those as well um yeah so many of us that find her book kind of go through that table of contents and can you know can be affirmed that we're we're doing the right stuff we're on the right track so we're on the right track and it's hard at the beginning of a cancer journey 
to have the confidence that this stuff will work because uh, it's so scary. You guys know that, but mm -hmm. the more you find yourself healing, it sort of feeds on itself and it kind of builds confidence and you think, Oh, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And that helps you heal even more. Um, but I, I definitely think that of of the factors, I mean, everyone everyone finds their own. Some use all all the factors, mm -hmm. um, but for me, the number one, if I had to pick one, it was taking charge of my health. Mm -hmm. That that just changed everything. It really did. Yeah. So, would you say that you were the sort of compliant, good patient in the beginning, just nodded and followed doctor's orders? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think most people do that and I get it. I, I, I respect that other people do that. Even if when I see them going off in their journey, I, I want to like warn them like, no, no, don't do that. But I, I, I did it too. So I totally understand it. And I think fear is really a, such a huge motivator. Um, I think also in conjunction with fear, we're taught, some might say brainwashed to just listen to your doctor they know authority more than yeah. their authority figures. They know more than you. And the truth is, in some ways, they do know more than patients. But I, I learned and realized that they don't know more than me about my own body. And they don't know more than me about what's comfortable and what's not comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I forgot what your question was. But yeah, it, it's... Yes, I you asked me if I was a compliant patient. Right. Yeah. I was. Sounds like definitely you were and and yeah. now you're not. <laughs> no, I probably swung over to the, you know, on the pendulum, maybe <laughs> maybe a little too far the other way, but but I I, th I think, you know, doctors certainly have a role, but I I've you know, it's like like a plumber. You call a plumber and you're not going to let them dictate. You're going to you're going to let them give you their suggestions and their advice. They're going to give you an estimate. They're going to tell you what they're going to do. And then you yeah. get to decide what you want to do. And I think that the same thing holds true that I will listen to my doctors. But that doesn't mean I have to obey my doctors. And I think that's a really, really important distinction. I would agree with that. And I noticed in your book that your therapist called you the CEO of your health. Was that new to you or did that? Because that's what Kelly says in Radical Remission that she learned from all the Radical Remission survivors that they became the CEO of their health. Yeah, I mean, uh, my therapist had started teaching me that before I got diagnosed with cancer, teaching me that concept um, because I've been running my own company for now, it's about 35, 36 years. Um, and, and I think, you know, I'm decent at it. Um, and my therapist knew that, and she wanted me to use the same principles that I would use in running my company mm -hmm. in my personal life. Not mm -hmm. to say I should dictate and order people around or anything like that, but just to be assertive mm -hmm. and to state my opinions and to have good communication skills, um, but also to take charge of a situation when the situation warranted taking charge of that situation, if that's not too redundant. Um, and so when when I got diagnosed with cancer, she reminded me, you can be the CEO of your own health. And it was Love great that. advice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, when we when we teach the workshop, we often say, especially around this factor, we will say things like, you know, 
doctors are an expert in what they are trained to do, but that doesn't make them the expert on you. And only you are the person that can can make those decisions. And I love the concept of that kind of CEO of your own health because you're, you know, we do a lot of visualization of standing at the head of that boardroom table and having your doctor take a seat there. And whoever else is at the table, who are your other healers, who are your other caregivers, like who else is at that table? And it really, I feel, um, you know, doctors are human beings, right? They're, they're just people. Yeah. They can have good days. They can have bad days. They have a lot of knowledge in a very specific area that can be extremely beneficial when we first start on a cancer journey, right? So, and, and then some, but it's also important as you add healers uh, to, uh, to your table to, or to your boardroom table, um, you know, everybody having an equal voice and you being the decision maker. So I love that that really sounds like how it played out for you as well. It did. Uh, and I want to piggyback on what you said. I agree with all that. Um, doctors are human and is what you stated. And that's completely true, which means they have their strengths, then they have their weaknesses. The first oncologist I had I, I, you know, in fairness, I would say he helped some people because I met them in the waiting room. Of course, I didn't meet the people who he didn't help because they weren't around anymore, but, but he did help some people. He wasn't helping me and he wasn't open to any questions that I had, which really was a big red flag, yeah. a huge red flag that, you know, and it taught me they work for me. They work for me. And if they're not open to answering my questions, it's time to find new doctors. Yep. I, the, the, the One other thing I'll add to that is I've really learned over the years now to make sure I remember that they are medical doctors, which means I, I take that literally. They know medicine. They're not right. health doctors. They're not trained in nutrition. They're not trained in wellness. Right. And there are other people who are. So, yeah, it's they're they're part of the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they are not the team. Who else right. did you have on your team, Chris? Who else besides that conventional oncologist sat there or eventually? I had, I had an osteopathic doctor, D.O., who was um, both conventional and non-conventional. And when I fired my first oncologist in March of 2017, my do um she was great she really she has great communication skills she's has presence of mind to know what she doesn't know and then when she is in a situation like that she asks other people who know more than her and that's what a great quality that is right because yeah. none of us can know everything um she was I would say the number one person on my team, I had my therapist, uh, part of my team. I talked to different nutritionists and that's a whole other story. I got very, very <laughs> different and conflicting advice about that. And I had to figure that out on my own. I had to thread the needle of what was going to be right for me. Um, I mean, I had nutritionists saying I should be vegan. I had others saying, no, you need to eat meat. Some who said uh, do keto. Um, I mean, it was it was all over the map, and and I took I took what was common from all of them, and really what was common was eat clean, eat healthy, eat in moderation, 
and cut out carbs and sugar. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the biggest takeaway from the nutritionist. I, I know one of the factors is is radically changing your diet. And I did do that. I did do that. Um, and I think that's that's a, a huge part of a healing process. Yeah, yeah. It can be the one thing that people, like it's a physical thing and I know I can control this and I can do something about it. It can be really hard if people don't want to give up some of the things they need to give up. What was your hardest thing to to give up or eliminate? Or reduce, oh, I should say. Yeah, probably. I was never a big sweets eater, so that was actually pretty easy to give up. But um, giving up pasta, mm. um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Italian food uh, eater. Not anymore. You know, now now I'll, I'll have pasta maybe once a month or something. But I could, you know, before I could eat it three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your favorite dish now? I eat a lot of fish, you know, a lot of salmon. Um, I'm big on oysters. Um, once in a while, I'll eat red meat. Um, I, I've tried, what I've realized is I, as long as I, what I mentioned earlier, as long as I eat clean foods, um, that I, I don't have to be that super religious and disciplined about it. The discipline is eating clean food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also realized I don't have to be perfect. I, I did some treatment in Germany early on for my cancer and I was outpatient there and I was staying across the street. My apartment was across the street from a bakery and my doctor in Germany, who I, I adored, he knew where I was staying. And he said to me at one point, he said, have you tried that bakery across the street from you? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to eat healthy and be mindful. He said, it's good that you're being mindful. He said, it's also okay once in a while if you go to that bakery and, and treat yourself because <laughs> part of life is treating Enjoying. yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I took that to heart. Like, okay, I don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that. It, it yeah. is so important. People do get really hung up on if I'm not perfect, then they start stressing out. The stress is worse. The stress is worse. I mean, if, if I went and had a scone at the bakery and I wound up dying two days later, I was going to die anyway. It wasn't because of the scone. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear more about how you adventured over to Germany. When I, when I quit chemo in March of 2017, it was just a few months after I got diagnosed. I, I was so fed up with how I felt on the chemo. And I really thought at that point I was, I would rather die of cancer than die of chemo. I was just so miserable and the chemo wasn't working. It would have been one thing if it had been working, but it wasn't. And so I impulsively quit. I had no plan B, um, which in hindsight, you know, could have looked foolish. And I think some people thought I was foolish back then. And maybe even part of me thought I was foolish because I didn't have a plan in place. But when I quit, I just never went back to that oncologist, never went back for chemo. And I realized at that point, I still wanted to live. Uh, my kids were in high school and middle school. And so I, you know, that was another factor. I had here two strong reasons for living. I mean, I had other reasons I wanted to live, but my kids were, were definitely right up there. Um, but then I just started exploring, oh, there's options here. There's options. I had a friend who had gone to Germany to a clinic. He had, um, 
bladder cancer. He's still around. He's still doing great. And he had gone to this clinic and he told me about it. And I thought, okay, I'll give that a shot. Uh, my friends helped me raise money because, as you know, these things aren't cheap. And I wound up going to Germany for three weeks in May of 2017. That's amazing. So it's so hard for so many people, a couple of things, the resistance to making a decision like you did and just quitting. But also the other thing that's really hard for people is to ask others for money. So how was that for you to set up that GoFundMe? It was hard. Um, uh, uncomfortable. Um, I, one of my friends um, ran the GoFundMe, so I, I let her take the lead on it. Um, that made it a little easier. But uh, it, it's hard. It's hard asking for help. Yeah. It is. Um, and it and it's an unfortunate part about the way our cancer system, our cancer care system, our Western medical, Western medicine system is set up in this country is that they're not going to pay for all these alternative treatments. And so you either have to be rich or well off or find a way to raise money. Um, and so that's what we did. We raised the money. Sounded like from the book that you just had an outpouring of people that wanted to help and that did fund that trip. Yeah, I mean, I think we tried to, I think we set the goal of 50,000. I mean, this has been six and a half years ago now, so it's hard to remember, but I think we set it at 50,000 and we wound up raising like 70,000, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, yeah, it was completely flattering and humbling and it still can get me a little overwhelmed thinking about it and talking about it. I, I was really lucky. I was really lucky and I'll, yeah, I'll, never, a... I'll never forget that. That is uh, truly allowing yourself to be embraced by embraced by your social social support system, right? And that feeling the love of the commitment that those people had made in you, and believing in you, and believing in your choices. That's so validating and really such an important part of um, you know that healing experience, so that you feel seen. I totally agree. And again, everyone does things differently. I, I don't preach. I don't say there's a right or wrong here, but I, I made up my mind early on, um, like within a couple of weeks after I got diagnosed to let people know what was going on. So I started writing blogs. I, I think I had a WordPress account back then. And then I would let people know on Facebook that I had written something and I built up a mailing list. I just didn't want to keep it a secret. Um, I, I sort of felt like, okay, let's let everyone know. And I actually think it really helped me. I really do. Um, even when I went to Germany, I was, I, I'm smiling now, but it wasn't fun. I, I would do these videos, these live videos on Facebook and I was in tears because I cried a lot when I was going through this early on. And people have told me it was hard to watch those videos and I'm sure it was. Um, but I also think it was part of the process. It was part of the healing process. It was to not keep it a secret, to let people in, to embrace their fondness or their love or whatever they wanted to call it. Yeah, it all helped. Yeah, that's beautiful. I know I did the same, like tell everyone and, and get people on board with, you know, helping out and positive thoughts and prayers. And, you know, that can be helpful 
there are people who are more private and don't want to share that kind of information. Um, but for me, same, it really helped to know that all those people were on my side and, and really wanted me to do well. And, and it helped me to set the tone for how I wanted to be treated, right? Like I'm going to take a positive approach to this. And people got that loud and clear. And uh, I know you had to deal with what you call the pity look. Yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to, yeah, the pity look. Thankfully, I don't get that anymore. Um, now I get the, wow, you're still alive. <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> oh my God. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I remember, I mean, one incident in particular, I remember it was uh, uh, June of 2017 and my older son was graduating middle school and I I went to the to the graduation ceremony and that was a few only a few months after I got diagnosed and, and I think I had just gotten back from Germany like a month before so but I was still thin and I was still I at that point I, I still thought I was going to die even though I was starting to feel better and it, you know because I hadn't kept my journey a secret everyone knew about it so I so I went to this graduation ceremony and you know some parents I hadn't seen for a long time and I was getting pity look after pity look like oh you know you're you know you're so sorry you're going through this and everyone means well everyone is saying that with with love and affection but it's still hard to see people give that look um, right. they they mean it with good intention um but I, I knew, and they've told me in hindsight, some of them have told me they thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. So those pity looks were genuine. I wasn't imagining them. They were real. Yeah. So many people will express their um, their own personal feelings about cancer through just their reactions to someone else having it. And it can be that pity look can definitely come from a place of fear within that person. And it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to field it. I I whether you are aware or not, my story is um, I lost my sister to breast cancer in 2014. And the pity look that you talk about is I, I often see a lot of parallels between people who have a significant diagnosis and the loss of someone that was really close to you. The, the grieving process is very similar um, when you lose someone. And then when you gain this diagnosis, there's a lot of grief on that parallel and that pity look is one of them. Obviously, um, you know, people feel for you, but it is, it's, it's much more, I, the people that had really extreme reactions, I noticed um, that I might not even have been close to, it was about, it would, if it were to happen to them, mm -hmm. it was that, that kind of reaction. I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, people bring their own stuff, good or bad. Right. You know, they've had experiences like you did with your sister or they've had their own experiences or they're they've heard about you know obviously who hasn't heard about cancer right and they're just right. deathly afraid of it yeah people do the best they can and they don't always know how to react um, yeah. yeah and there isn't any right way but it is uh doesn't make it any easier to receive right back then it was tough yeah yeah sometimes it made me not want to go out because i didn't want to deal with all this attention on me but right. then i thought okay i asked for this because i made it public <laughs> so, so i'm just gonna you know muddle through it um and again i didn't know then that it would work out but it did mm -hmm. 
If you would like to learn more about the Radical Remission Healing Factors, join a Radical Remission Workshop to learn how to implement them into your life. You will learn how lifestyle choices such as diet change, increasing positive emotions, empowerment, and more can boost your immune system in scientifically proven ways. Our workshop follows a unique interactive format that encourages sharing and social support. You will create a self-designed one-week, one-month, and six-month action plan that you can begin to implement right away. For many, a Radical Remission workshop is the first step in finding a like-minded, uplifting healing community. The 10 factors of Radical Remission can be used safely by anyone on a healing journey as well as for prevention. These 10 factors will aid you in improving your immune function and have helped many people overcome cancer or other chronic illnesses. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find virtual and in-person workshops as well as other events. Being diagnosed with a serious health challenge can be emotional and overwhelming. At Radical Remission Project, we believe no one needs to face the diagnosis alone. Our certified health coaches work one-on-one -on -one or in small groups to support people living with a diagnosis to integrate the 10 healing factors of radical remission. Our team of coaches include national board-certified health coaches, doctors, nurses, and other medical practitioners, as well as mental health providers. Our coaches meet each person where they are on their healing journey to offer support, accountability, and goal setting in a positive manner. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find your health coach and connect with them to learn more about what it might look like to work together. See the show notes for links to find a coach on RadicalRemission.com. Yeah, Chris, I want to ask you about, you know, so releasing suppressed emotions and you talked in the book about how much you cried and you mentioned it here too. Um, did you, did you realize, and did you feel that by, by crying, you were releasing emotions and was that cathartic for you or was it really just fear-based? Uh, yes to both. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, even when I was younger, I was always for a guy, I was always more of a crier, not nearly to the extent I was you know, a few years ago when I got diagnosed, but, um, it was definitely cathartic. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I you know, I, I don't know if this is proven or not, but I, it actually made me think, why do women live longer, a few years longer than men? And I started thinking, okay, one of the reasons, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons has to be that women are better at showing their emotions, not hiding their emotions. And that's a good thing. That's healthy. And so I thought, okay, this crying is good. It's good. And it definitely was cathartic. I mean, in, in the book, which you probably read about, I, I, I think the title of the chapter was song, uh, songs that I sang in the shower or something like that, but it was, yes, I, that's yes. where I, that's where I, did most of my crying there's something about the hot water and it was just like an emotional release a physical release um but there was also some tears of fear too no question about it oh, Let, yeah. less so, less so as time went on um and i'll i'll, I'll add one more thing to this 
the the crying a lot has not changed. I'm much more emotional now than I was pre-diagnosis, and I, that's a good thing. You know, I I can cry at the drop of a hat now, and it's great. And you know, it's a good release. So it's Are a good other- release, and then and I'll just I own it now. It's like whatever. Someone doesn't. Someone thinks it's something's wrong with it. That's on them. I, I don't right. care. Right. Yeah, that's good. I love that. Do you have other ways that you release suppressed emotions? Do you, does your anger come out in some way? Does the fear come out in some other ways or? Yeah. Do I have other ways? Ask me that question again. I want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. Are there other ways that you are able to release suppressed emotions? You know, some people it's all about exercising to get it out or dancing or drumming or, you know, therapy, whatever it is. Um, exercising is a huge thing for me. I, I, have I grew up, um, as a kid in the sixties, I was born in 1956, but I, I remember, you know, as kids, I think we all have stories of being outside more, you know, playing for hours on end with our friends down the street until your parents would either call you or you'd have a watch and you'd know to come back. Or it's getting dark and you know, you have or to Or it's go getting back. dark. Right. <laughs> yes. And I think I think something happened between two things in society. One was one was air conditioning, believe it or not, when air conditioning became much more predominant. And then also television and then computers and then phones and all that. We just became more sedentary. We were indoors more because indoors is more comfortable than being outdoors. And then we had more entertainment indoors too. And so where I'm going with this is we we excuse me, we became more of a sedentary society and that's not been good for us at all Mm -hmm. um and so and and we're seeing how that phenomenon has led to a lot of illness you know it's led to obesity it's led to cancers heart disease diabetes all sorts of bad things and and so i was always mindful of that and i've always been an exercise person anyway so i just rededicated myself to this has to be part of my healing journey. It has to be. And um, yeah, it, it helps just my physical health. It, it, you know, your original question was, is it help with suppressed emotions? Absolutely, it does. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so many of the healing factors of radical remission have a, a dual purpose, right? So, you know, exercise does help with releasing and it's also good for your body and then if you go outside in nature and you exercise you also get that that uh, connection with nature and something bigger and if you're doing it with somebody else you get the social support too so yeah what uh, i know you do yoga what's another form of exercise you love doing love hiking um mm-hmm. there's just something about you know just to piggyback on what you said about just being out in nature and breathing hopefully fresh air sometimes not so fresh air but just breathing air um, getting the vitamin d sunshine uh, most of the time hiking with other people and so you're getting that social aspect of it yeah i'd love to know um if that is would you consider that a form of your spiritual connection because a lot of times people will refer to being out in nature as their kind of way to connect with spiritual side no question about it. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah, I, I, it, yeah, I'm not particularly, uh, religious in the classical sense, but yeah, I go out in nature, you know, hiking in the Sierras or hiking near my house here in Santa Monica. And and you think, oh my gosh, well, how did this all happen? 
and I, right. and I never come up with any answers, but it does make me think, and it definitely gets me more in touch with, okay, I don't know what it is, and I don't have the words for it. I don't know how to define it, but there's something much larger than just humans on this planet. So is intuition something that plays a part? Did that help you with the decision to uh, fire your oncologist and, and do something different? Yes. The short answer is yes. The longer answer is I've learned over the decades that when I don't trust my gut, that's the term I use, my intuition, my mm -hmm. gut, mm -hmm. um, that I can veer off in a direction that isn't the best. It's not to say that following my intuition always leads and successful leads to successful outcomes. It doesn't, but it leads to more successful outcomes by following my gut. Yeah. And so the example, which I already brought up about firing my oncologist, that was a, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. I don't, I wouldn't say it was well thought out. It, like I said earlier, it could have been impulsive, but I, I knew in my gut, it was something I had to do. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's a, a huge factor. Like some, sometimes we just feel it. We know something is right or we know something is wrong. It's not to say, you know, and I've been guilty of this too. We don't always follow our gut, but you know, it's, it, it really helps to start paying more attention. That's yeah. a lifelong practice, I think, but it really, it really does help to pay more attention. It really does. And that's one of the things we focus on in the workshop is pay attention to your intuition, figure out how to pay attention to it, like start writing down certain things you feel and see if it plays out. And, you know, it, it is hard when we don't learn to pay attention to our intuition. And it's not necessarily valued, or it didn't used to be, it's becoming more valuable to people to, to know they have that inner guidance and to pay attention to it. So um, at what point, so, you know, talking about intuitively, you know, firing the oncologist, was it after that, that you got the genetic test that, that showed the mutation, the mother mutation? Um, it was my, my first oncologist for whatever reasons, and I can have my cynical beliefs about this, but he, he had no curiosity. He knew what he knew. And he, he had his regimen of chemotherapy, but he didn't really want to know about the tumor. It really, and this was back in late 2016. I don't know. I think things are different now, but I don't know that it was standard of care mm -hmm. back then for him to be actually required to do genetic testing on it. But my osteopathic doctor, like I said earlier, was is a very curious person and she wanted to know. Are there, are there any genetic mutations here? Anything going on beyond just what the biopsy says? Um, and now I forgot what your question was. I'm sorry. No, I was just wondering at what point, because I'm really interested in that that genetic mutation and, and what you learned, you know, once you knew that that was there, what was your course of action around it? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that, that's a great question. I want to think about that. I, I think what it what it taught me at that time was, oh, I'm on the wrong track here when it comes to chemotherapy, because the genetic anomalies, and we all have them, we have different ones, but we all have them, for me was that it was hard to flush out toxins mm -hmm. in my body. And chemo, 
for better or for worse, is a toxin. So some people have a much harder time handling chemo than others. Um, so it was a way for me to connect the dots. Like, oh, okay, that could have been one of the reasons I was having so much trouble with it. It also made me think, you know, just like some people, one of my children has a peanut allergy. Our bodies are different. I've never, for my entire life, I've never done well on prescription drugs, ever. I, I am the one that gets the side effects that are listed in the end of the TV commercials. That's me. Mm -hmm. um, and having these genetic anomalies to explain that I have trouble flushing out toxins. I don't know if that's the only explanation for it, but it's certainly one of them. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's really something to be said for information as power. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't even know about these genetic anomalies, mutations, whatever the correct term is. Um, and I'm still by no means an expert at them, but I think it really helps to have as much information as possible. Yeah. And then that, so it was the MTHR or what we kind of refer to as the mother mutation, right? right? Did that lead you to um, a different course of action? Is that what led you to go to Germany or just that, that just validated your stopping chemotherapy and trying something that was less toxic? I would say it validated both. It validated the decision to quit chemotherapy, which I'd already decided, but it's like, oh yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And it helped me, it helped push me into knowing I had to, excuse me, to do, to take an alternative path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the Germany experience and, you know, what wacky things did you do over there? <laughs> you know, in, I, I was over there I think a month, month and a half after I quit chemotherapy. So my body was not in good shape when I got on that plane. And, and I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this. Um, I, I was fortunate not only to have the GoFundMe to help pay for all that, but I had friends who joined me over there. Both of my brothers joined me over there. So uh, that's part of the answer to your question. I had a lot of not only financial support, but I had a lot of on the ground support mm -hmm. while I was there, which really helped. I mean, I think of the three weeks I was there, I maybe was alone for a day or day and a half or something. So that really, really was helpful. And I like being alone, but I didn't really like being alone then. Um, the, the kind of things that I did in Germany were some of the things you can do now in the United States, more so now, but a lot of the things are, are, still illegal here in the US. Um, I, I was getting a lot of vitamin drips over there, which you can get here now. It's much more predominant to be able to find these hydration rooms in, in a lot of our big cities here in the US, but it wasn't common back then. Um, let's see, I did laetrile, I did dendritic stem cell therapy, which I'm pretty sure still is not legal here in the US. I did hyperthermia, which is heat treatment which is only legal in the U.S. if you're, you only get your insurance to pay for it if you're doing a Western medicine treatment in conjunction with it. So, and I, I wasn't going to do that again. I wasn't going to do chemo or radiation. So I, I mean, there's, there's a hyperthermia place here a mile from my house in Santa Monica. And I called them in 2017 and they said, no, you either have to do chemo or radiation or you're going to have to pay for it. 
and insurance won't cover it. And it's really expensive, thousands and thousands of dollars per visit. So hmm. um, mistletoe I did over there. But I was also doing mistletoe here, even though mistletoe is not, I don't know if, if prescribing mistletoe is illegal, but you can't really buy it in the U.S. Um, but one of my doctors, I won't mention their name, uh, I don't want to get them in trouble, prescribed it from a Canadian pharmacy and taught me how to inject it. Um, so I was doing that both in Germany and here in the U.S. Um, I didn't know at the time that I picked the German clinic, that there were other clinics there as well, but there was also, there were many in in Mexico, much closer to my house. Um, but I had just sort of picked it because, oh, I had a friend that did it and he had success with it. So I thought, okay, why not? Um, but I think the biggest thing is it helped me get rid of the toxins from the chemotherapy. And it just really jump-started my healing path. I mean, maybe the jump-start was quitting and quitting chemo and firing my oncologist, but but going there shortly after it, we're like, okay, this is really good. Now I'm on a healthier path. Yeah. Yeah, so Chris, if you had to share one piece of advice to our audience about maybe something that you've learned that you think would be worth sharing, what would it be? I get asked that question a lot, and it's hard to narrow it down to one uh, one thing. But but I, I will. Um, <laughs> I to me, the number one thing was taking charge of my health. It absolutely was. Instead of outsourcing my health, instead of mm. instead of letting others tell me what to do, I got to decide what I wanted to do, and that meant that. I mean, I had no guarantee that I, what I did was going to work. I could have died from doing all this stuff. And sometimes people do. Um, there's really no guarantees. But I, I knew I wanted to increase my odds of living. I wanted to reduce my risk of dying. And I felt like if I'm in charge, I have a better chance of doing that. So I would say the number one thing for me was taking charge. That's great. great. Yeah. yeah. Good example of that too, you are. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And so Chris, what's what's the status of, of your disease? Because I know at the end of the book that, you know, um, after Germany, there was another piece that you did for a couple of years. And you're you're definitely in that stable, no evidence right now, right? Uh yeah. I mean, I haven't had a scan in this could be another foolish thing. I don't know. I, I don't tell pe other people what to do. I just decide for myself. But I haven't had a scanner in almost two years. Uh, I know my doctors would want me to have one now every year. But I, I just, I've learned to really listen to my body. And if I started having symptoms, I, would, I wouldn't hesitate. I'd go get a scan. But I've been feeling great. Um, I mean, I, I'm turning 67 in a couple months and I'm still working and I'm wrote the first book. I'm writing a second book. I'm doing lots of things in my life, still being a parent. Um, so I, I've sort of felt like, uh, <laughs> you know, I just have to be like a shark, keep moving. And, um, and that seems to work and I feel great. That's great. Love that. So happy for you. Yeah. 
Is there yes. anything else that you would like to share with us? Something we didn't cover or something more that you think would benefit our audience? Um, I, I think that what you guys are doing is, is you know, a hero's work. I, I think that the Radical Remission book and project and workshops and, and seminars, um, they're really helpful. They were helpful to me. And, you know, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast episode, but if they're just starting out on their journey, there's lots of resources, but the Radical Remission has to be right there, <laughs> right Thank there you. at the top. Yeah. Well, so thank you. Many. We didn't pay him to tell tell all of you that. <laughs> no, no. So I'm, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not paid. No. <laughs> and Chris, I I did hear from Carla that you have uh, participated in the Radical Remission Workshop. How was that for you? I liked it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always hard. I, that's the bottom line. Whatever else I say after that, I really <laughs> liked it and I thought it was helpful. It's it's sometimes it's hard being around hard for me being around other people at different stages of their cancer journeys. Mm -hmm. I've gotten better at that because I'm doing some of my own coaching now of other people, but it is hard. It, it, it takes a lot of patience and, and um, empathy and sympathy. Um, and so it certainly wasn't an objection of my, I, it's more like I had, to, I had to learn how to get used to that. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure that I was as used to that, when I did that workshop as I am now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was a couple of years ago, right? It was, it was two yeah. or three years ago. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. So if people want to connect with you, Chris, if you're open for that, you're coaching yourself, you know, others, what, how can they find you? Um, they can email me at Chris Joseph at Mac, like the computer Mac.com. Um, I think the book site I have is life is a ride book. Dot com. I'm on social media. Facebook is Chris Joseph in Santa Monica. I think Instagram is Mr. Mr. Chris Joseph. Um, or they can Google me, you know, Google Chris Joseph and pancreatic and a bunch of stuff will pop up and they can find me that way. Right. And we'll be sure to put all that information in the show notes so people listening can easily find you. Thank you. Thank you. We're so glad that you are here to tell your story and inspire others. And we really appreciate your time today. Thanks. I'm glad I'm here to tell the story. Too. <laughs> it, it beats the alternative. <laughs> it's been so nice to meet you and hear your story. And I'm sure that it will touch many when they give it a listen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Remission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project, or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission healing factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission health coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease, or perhaps even no evidence of disease, you can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla mans produced by Ryan Giroux, music by Batchbug. Follow The Stories That Heal wherever you get your podcasts.